Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. My name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor here. If you're new, love to meet you afterwards. Our our senior pastor is uh, at his son's graduation this weekend, his youngest son's, so the last college graduation for the Silvernail family. Pretty exciting. It kind of occurred to me this morning that a smart preacher would not start off his sermon with a boxing illustration on Mother's Day, but I am not that smart preacher, so I don't know if you saw all the hype surrounding the fight of the century two weekends ago. I kind of sort of couldn't escape it. Um, Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, boxing match. Um, apparently, it turned out to be not too exciting. I haven't even seen any of it. Um, but the hype around it was unbelievable. Uh, my parents were joking with me that they were going to sell their house so they could sit ringside just to point out the ridiculousness of the money that this uh, event brought in. Apparently, the two boxers will be splitting over $300 million between them. One fight. That is just unconscionable. I would never support that. I would never pay to see it live. I would not pay the $100 to see it on pay-per-view. I was hoping somebody would invite me over so I could watch it. I would have brought chips and drinks, but I would not pay for it. But everybody likes to get caught up a little bit. And so I, I, I read a lot about it, and I sort of got excited about uh, the contrast between the two fighters. Now, I, ha I don't follow boxing much, but from what I understand, Floyd Mayweather, uh, the guy that won, undefeated, unbelievable boxer, not such a great guy, um, kind of the epitome of greedy, indulgent, hedonism, a history of legal and domestic troubles, this huge entourage that he just throws money at. And while Manny Pacquiao has had his issues, uh, he's become a very strong believer in Christ. In fact, you can watch his testimony on YouTube. Uh, you can see he speaks of, of how Christ has changed him. And so I was a little intrigued by the sort of good versus evil nature of the fight. And in the weeks leading up to the fight, they interviewed both boxers and all kinds of people around it. And Manny Pacquiao told several interviewers this line, they, what's going to happen in the fight? The Lord will deliver him into my hands. I got, I got kind of excited. I thought, wow, this guy has great faith. That's going to be awesome to see him beat Floyd Mayweather. And you probably are aware, if you know anything about sports, that he lost. So I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to do with that. Should we stone him as a false prophet? No, uh, should we just commend him for his faith, his confidence, but maybe he should have trained harder? Um, maybe the Lord didn't factor in, apparently had a hurt shoulder. I'm not sure what happened. But I, the question I want to ask is, is that what faith looks like? Claiming promises that God never made, assuming that God will bless whatever endeavor you set off on, 
where's the line between faith and presumption? Let's get a little grounding. Let's, let's find out what the Bible tells us faith looks like. We'll be reading most of Hebrews chapter 11. We're skipping a few verses because we're saving them for next week. Uh, but Hebrews 11 is often called the Hall of Faith just because it lists so many of the Old Testament uh, people, saints. It's a good summary of the Old Testament quickly describes the way that they acted in faith. I'm not going to break the chapter up into three sections. So we'll take the smallest section first, the first six verses that examine the nature of faith, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. I'm just going to stop there. We'll read more with the other points. Uh, the first book I think I ordered on Amazon when I heard that we were going to study Hebrews is called, I Wish Someone Would Explain Hebrews to Me. Because that's how I felt. I've read it before. There's some really difficult passages. I want to make sure I had some good, solid stuff. And the, the author's name is Stuart Oliot. And in his book, he calls faith our sixth sense. Now, technically speaking, we know there's only five senses, right? Taste, touch, hearing, seeing, smelling. But it's very common to feel that there are things that can be understood outside of those five. And, of course, the classic movie Sixth Sense says that maybe that's uh, an ability to see the afterlife, seeing dead people. Uh, other people speak of the sixth sense as being an intuition a hunch, a perceptive awareness that is not logically or reasonably explained, maybe even psychic ability. So why not claim that sixth sense as faith? One of the most famous definitions in all scripture is here in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have an understanding of things that we can't see or currently be aware of. But we have hope and solid assurance that what is promised spiritually will come about despite the fact that our current circumstances would lead us to conclude otherwise. Now the follow-up question has to be, is, is faith a reliable, reasonable response to concrete things 
Or is it blind faith based on nothing solid? Is faith this mystical, psychic thing that can't be proven and transcends all rules of logic? Well, here another commentator, Highwell Jones, reminds us, faith is not irrational. It is not a flight from the real world. It is an understanding of the world. And the only way in which it can properly, properly be understood as a world that God has made and will remake, it's not intellectual suicide, and it's more than intellectual assent. Faith is neither inward-looking nor self-sustaining. And of course, that's where the trustworthiness and the character of God come in. If God is worthy of our trust, then we can have faith in what he's promised. If God is not trustworthy and has not delivered in the past, then we have blind faith and not a solid foundation on which to rest our faith. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that the people of old had faith in God, were commended for it. And, and we talk about the fact that they had faith that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Sometimes Judaism and the Old Testament, Hebrews, is spoken of as a works faith where they earned, and that's not true. Because they're commended for their faith in God and faith in Christ who they didn't know yet, looking forward. And we're going to work through 30 more verses here showing how those Old Testament saints commended faith. But first, we're told in verse 3 that a test of our faith is whether we believe that God created the world from nothing. That God formed the world simply with his creating word. You either believe that or you don't. There's not wiggle room there. I don't... Regardless of your view of the days of creation, whether they're literal or, or frameworks, um, or your view of micro-macro evolution, back up. You must believe that God created the world. Random chance creation has no support in Scripture. And what that means is the Christian worldview is open to the miraculous, to the supernatural, to God's intervention from the start. Once we believe that God created everything, then believing that he intervenes at times is no stretch at all. To believe that, that Jesus could multiply food or heal diseases, that's nothing comparing, compared to creating the whole world. And so that's our starting point. And then we start into our list of Old Testament people who are commended for their faith. And we have two men, Abel and Enoch. And I'm not going to, I don't have time to uh, go through everybody's story much in depth. <laughs> Just kind of like the author of Hebrews is going to tell us later. I, we don't, time doesn't permit me to keep talking about all these guys. But they pleased God by the way they lived and the way they worshipped. And he uses that to bring us then into verse 6 that says that faith must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him, just like he rewarded Abel and Enoch. We're told not that it's hard to please God without faith. What does it say? We're, it's impossible to please God without faith. Now elsewhere, Paul lists the, the big three virtues, right? Faith, hope, love. What does he say is the most important? Love. But here, we see that faith is very important to God. And I believe it's a way of showing our love for God. I love God so much, I'm going to trust him for who he is and live my life in a way that I know is pleasing to him, that he will reward. So now, starting in verse 7, the author is going to sail through the pages of the Old Testament highlighting the acts of faith that are recorded there. And we see in the next group of verses, verse 7 through 12, and then we'll skip a little, 17 through 22, that faith chooses the difficult path to get to the glory in the future. Faith makes hard decisions today, now, because it looks forward. Let's read those verses. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is like a one-minute summary of the, almost the entire book of Genesis. At least if you start in chapter 6, go through chapter 50. We took a year and a half to do that. Look at how much time I could have saved. Now, the forefathers and, and the mothers of the Hebrew faith teach us that no matter what our eyes tell us, God tells us to look past what today looks like and focus on where he's calling us to go. There are great things planned, God said, but you need to trust me for them. 
Because right now you can't see them. And so we have these men and women of faith. In verse 7, we're reminded Noah obeyed God despite what it looked like. God wanted him to build this huge ark that took years to build. We're pretty sure his neighbors are just mocking him and wondering what this thing is. I took faith mixed with reverent fear, it says, and it paid off for Noah in a big way. The human race started over after the flood through Noah's family because he obeyed in faith. Abraham is commended for two acts of faith. And this is important because remember, there were two great parts of the covenant promises to Abraham, land and descendants. And when they were made, he didn't own any land and he didn't have any descendants and he was 90. He had to actively trust the Lord to receive both of them. So first, leaving his homeland for a foreign land. God moves him out of what was comfortable, moves him into what eventually would be the promised land, right? God was promising. And second, being willing to sacrifice his only son, the son that he had waited for, the son that God had promised would be his line. We'll come back to that because first, Sarah, his wife, is commended just for believing God that she would have a son at 90 years old. And I think that's funny. It doesn't really talk about it in the text, but you remember the account in Genesis. When she hears she's going to have a son, she laughs. Remember? And that's, she laughs in disbelief, and that was after she tried to get her husband to impregnate the maidservant to make this happen. Not the way God wanted it. She doesn't seem like a model of faith. But ultimately, she accepted it and believed God. And I kind of love that she's in there. Because how many times do I initially doubt God? Say, that that's probably not going to happen. And then I proved wrong. And then I believe. So Abraham and Sarah are given this miracle child, Isaac. And then God asks Abraham to sacrifice him. One of the hardest tests of faith, I'm sure. But Abraham follows through. He tries. Now Genesis doesn't tell us this, but the writer of Hebrews says that apparently Abraham figured, you know what, God must have a backup plan. He must plan on raising Isaac. I mean, that was... It may not sound like faith, but I think that was even more faith. Okay, I'm just going to do it because I know God is going to deliver this promise of descendants somehow through this boy, even if I kill him. And he was ready until God stopped him. And then there's very quickly Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are listed. Those are Abraham's son, grandson, great-grandson in order, right? And they're commended for making provisions for the future, for their offspring. If, if you don't quite understand what they were being commended for, I mean, what's this about giving directions about your bones? It's kind of a weird note. But they, and they give their sons blessings. So I think it's simply that they believed God's promises for their offspring, that he had great plans for them and was forming a holy nation through them. And so at the end of their lives, each one of them 
reaffirmed their belief in what God was doing. And said, God, yes, you are forming a nation through me, through my children. We'll come back to that too. God sometimes asks us to choose obedience now that will pay off much later. And that can be really tough. If you feel like you're the only Christian on your campus or in your workplace or in your family, God says, follow me, trust me. Even though it's hard now, it will pay off. There is glory in the future. There is reward. Every time you make a kingdom sacrifice and make decisions that don't necessarily make sense now, but are obedient to God's long-term plans, you show that you're a spiritual heir of these men and women of faith. And so the next series of examples, verses 23 through 38, illustrates how faith chooses God over worldly peace and wealth. Faith chooses the treasure of Christ over the treasure of the world of now. Let's read that. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt or he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood so that the the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now again, we're not going to have a ton of time to delve into each story That's what your community groups are for. Or your family, if you talk about the sermon, look through some of these stories. 
these 16 verses fly through the rest of the Old Testament. We're out of Genesis. Now we go through Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Kings, the prophets, the post-exilic period, everything. But first, Moses, the man that we'll be studying in our sermon series in the next school year. In fact, those first many verses are from Exodus, and that's going to be our fall and spring sermon series. We'll dive much more into that. But just to note that Moses chose rewards from God over the treasures of Egypt, right? Moses could have stayed in Pharaoh's house. Remember, he had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. But he chose to leave. He chose the difficult road of leading God's people out of bondage. Why? Because he realized that God was the true God. He realized that God had a greater reward in store than the temporary comforts and pleasures he could have stayed for. And I think the author spends so much time there because once he made that decision to leave, to break, to identify with Israel, every other decision flowed from that. It made it easier to, as the text say, keep the Passover, cross the Red Sea, take his people to the promised land. His life became a continual response in obedience. But it started with his leaving the palace for the slave quarters and the desert. Then we have verse 31. Rahab, the prostitute. Definitely not someone we would expect in a list like this. But she's commended for realizing that Israel's God was the true, the victorious God. And having the courage and faith to help them take the city of Jericho by hiding spies in her house. Essentially, she chose God and God's people over her own people, whom she must have realized were serving false gods. And so we know that after Jericho was destroyed, she and her family were spared and she lived among the Israelite community as an even included in the line of Christ. And now we get to the rest of the passage, verse 32 through 38. How do we deal with this passage? Because we've got two lists here that seem to contradict each other. The first list is people who conquered, were mighty in war, killed people. They won. They were given victory. And then the second list is people who were mistreated, attacked, beaten, killed in gruesome ways for their faith. They lost in our eyes, in the world's eyes. What do we do with that? How do we know that they both showed the deliverance of the Lord? Well, remember, there were times when God commanded Israel to conquer its neighbors, to be his instruments of justice, and kill them to save his people. We don't believe he calls us to that now. But then, as he established Israel as his chosen people, he authorized, he sent them into the land to conquer, particularly the era of the judges, which include Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, 
um, kings like David, even God's people after the exile. You can easily recognize Daniel shutting the mouth of the lions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, obedient to go into the furnace. But then there were the times when God called his people to difficult things, to be imprisoned, to be killed for their message. Zechariah was a prophet who was stoned. Isaiah was probably sawn in half. Prophets were killed throughout. The author might even be pointing to the story of the Maccabees in the intertestamental period or, or more recent examples of the early church believers who were persecuted for their faith. I'm not sure. But the main point is that they were commended. They're commended for persevering to gain a better resurrection. And either way, God used them in mighty ways because they chose him and his ways over the world. And I'm thankful that we have these two lists back to back in this discussion about faith because often we say that faith will only look one of these ways, right? We, we assume that when we have faith, we will only have victory and strength as a result and blessing. And we, so we embrace sort of the prosperity gospel that God has to bless us. And with the corresponding assumption, of course, that if you're defeated in life, it's your lack of faith. Or we go to the other extreme and say that Faith always results in persecution and ill treatment and that poor and abused of the world are always the righteous ones. I think the Bible seems to say that we could find ourselves in either place. Put there by God for his reasons, equally commended for our faith. Who knows why in Acts chapter 12 we see the apostle James put to the sword a few verses before the Apostle Peter is released from prison by an angel. One died by faith, the other escaped by faith. God's hand was in both. God's timing, God's reasons. Maybe that's where Manny Pacquiao went wrong. He assumed that God blessing your faith means you always win. We have to realize that sometimes God accepts our faith, allows us to lose or be persecuted for his glory. And we realize it's better to suffer with God than to prosper with the world. Willing, we must be willing to suffer loss for the treasure of our eternal inheritance. Now this whole chapter is framed, is, is pointed at, go back to the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 10, verse 39. Because we get kind of propelled into this. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so we're at a point in Hebrews where the author has just urged them. Because the Hebrews had a constant choice before them. Stop. Give up. Leave. For a number of reasons. That, but they also had the choice of standing solid in their faith of who God is, what He has done. 
the readers of Hebrews were facing the very real threat of being publicly insulted, imprisoned, having their earthly possessions stripped from them. And so it was a real question, would they endure all of that for the rewards promised? And so the author is constantly exhorting, don't drift away. Keep striving to hold on to your confidence in Christ to the end. Hold fast the confession of our hope. You've got the real thing. Don't trade it for the imperfect symbols and shadows that don't really achieve anything. That's where we've been in Hebrews. And he's so passionate about all of that because it seems like they were leaving. They were drifting. They were ready to abandon the faith. Silly first century believers. We're 21st century believers. We're not like that. We are totally solid in our faith. We would never contemplate leaving the faith and abandoning Christ. We're not facing an epidemic of kids growing up in our churches, walking away from the Lord in their college years and their 20s, right? We're not easily distracted by the cares of this world. We're never intimidated by those who disagree with us, obsessed with fitting in and being admired in the circles we find ourselves in. We would never give up on church after a a bad experience or two when we realized the church was full of sinners. We would never give up enduring the Christian life because it's too hard. We would never shrink back from declaring our faith, from holding tight to the historic truths of Scripture, whether or not society deems them tolerable and intellectually respectable or not, right? Ken Davis, who's a youth ministry speaker and great author, he tells a story about a speech that he gave in college explaining and illustrating pendulums and the law of the pendulum and the idea that a pendulum can never return to a point higher than when it was released, right? Friction and gravity slow it down and it'll always fall short of its original stopping point. So it makes less and less of an arc till it's finally at rest, right? And that's how pendulums works. And so he rigged up a, a very small kind of toy pendulum for the class and showed it to them and they got the concept. But he said, no, no, I'm not sure we do have the concept. Let's, let's try this. And he somehow rigged up a 250-pound metal weight on the end of 500-pound parachute cords that would definitely hold it. And he asked the professor to get up on a table and sit in a chair with his head right against a concrete wall. And he said, I'm going to start this weight right in front of your face. And the law of the pendulum says that when I release it and it swings, when it comes back, it's going to not reach you because it'll just, you know, slow down and not, it can never get higher than where I released it. And he asked the professor, do you you believe this? Yeah. So he released the pendulum that raced across the room and on the way back, he said he's never seen a professor move so quickly and jumped off the table and the chair. 
And he turned to the class and said, does he believe in the law of the pendulum? And they said, no. It's one thing to hold a truth in your head and believe it when it's safe. It's another thing to step up and stake something valuable on whether it's true or not. It's time for us to act in faith. The Lord does not use hypothetical faith. If you believe who God is, what He's done for you, and what He's promised for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose, it will show clearly in your life. Is is the invisible God a reality to you? Do you believe that His Word is sure and true? Got some other questions for you, but before I do, I'm going to take a drink of water. I want you to think about some area of your life where you're staking something important, where trusting God will require you to step out and faith. Does your faith lead you to approach God and worship in the way that he has appointed as Abel did? Are you moved to see that pleasing God is the most important thing in the world as Enoch did? Will you obey him even when it seems that you might be throwing everything away or living in an area, a land where you don't want to be? as Abraham did. Can you trust that what he says will happen, even when that seems impossible, as Sarah trusted? Do you claim the covenant promises for your children and seek to build on their faith as Isaac, Jacob, Joseph did? Do you consider the world's treasures as secondary, as and choose the lasting eternal treasures of Christ over the fleeting pleasures of wealth and sin, as Moses did. Are you willing to stand up for the gospel and not shrink back, waging spiritual warfare against the schemes of the devil as the judges and the kings did? Are you willing to be mistreated, talked poorly about, fired, imprisoned, find any number of things that you may have to give up as we follow Christ. It seems that today, if you are a Christian in the Middle East, you need to be ready to give an answer to those who would seek your life just for being a follower of Christ. It's not so drastic in America yet, but I think here you may be mocked on social media your beliefs. You may have real anger directed at you, threats of fines, closing your business. If you will not compromise and cave to the world's beliefs. And maybe it doesn't even need to be that dramatic. A huge step for some of us would just be admitting that we're a Christian to our friends, our classmates, opening up dialogue 
A big step for some of us would just be breaking up with an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend. Some it would be taking huge steps to repair broken relationships. For some, it's, it's a huge step to just lay down that I'm not going to chase the Northern Virginia dream of riches because I'd rather have time to love my family and coach my kids, volunteer at church. There are a thousand ways to suffer for Christ, to choose him over the riches and pleasures and esteem of this world. Now, I know this is a huge barrage of questions and applications, and, and you need to figure out how this is challenging you. We could probably break this down into many sermons. But I think everything gets back to the question of, does your faith manifest itself in the way you live your life? See, Jesus never rebuked his disciples saying, oh, ye of little strategy, or, oh, ye of too few resources, you, ye of too little formal education. What did he say? Oh, ye of little faith. And that can be us. Now, please don't be confused. Your eternal salvation does not hinge on you doing something amazing and exhibiting strong faith. Your eternal salvation is solely based on whether you trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, as the one who died in your place, paying the penalty for your sins. But saving faith works itself out in a life lived in obedience and trust. I love that the book of James immediately follows Hebrews because James reminds us in chapter 2 that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And he uses two of the examples that we've seen here, Abraham, Rahab, to show that they did works of faith, that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by their works. So if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you must first deal with that question. You cannot get to the heart of Hebrews chapter 11 and the exhortations to stand firm and act in faith until you have solid, saving faith. But we who have that, who are followers of Christ, we read the scriptures and see how God was faithful in the lives of his people, even when they were called to a hard road of persecution. And we see his promises of grace, of rewarding those who stand firm to the end, who reject the world's lies and the mirage of short-term pleasure and sin. And we make decisions confident in God's love and provision for us. May future generations look back and say, by faith, the saints of Potomac Hills made hard choices and sacrifices, standing firm in the faith because they knew that God would reward them. They chose the glory of the future over the comfort and riches of the present. Think about that. Let's spend a little time in silent prayer and then I'll close us.
Father God, thank you for our continued study of the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the many, many lessons it has for us. And even as there are some very difficult passages, it is rewarding. So bless those who have listened attentively, sought to understand, and now seek to apply. Thank you that as the next chapter is going to tell us, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Those saints, the invisible church called by you in heaven now, watching us, cheering us on as we live the life of faith. And thank you that the writers of Scripture recorded their stories, the ways that they obeyed, the ways that they disobeyed, the ways that they were rewarded with victory and the ways that they were rewarded with death. In your call, in your timing. Lord, we may not have clear communication with you like Noah, Moses spoke to you, but Lord, we have your word, which is enough to tell us how to live, to tell us what to trust in you, how to live our lives. And once we are saved in Christ, then we live the exciting adventure of the Christian life. But it is still hard for us to step out in faith. We can be paralyzed with fear of what other people will think. Fear of how hard our life's going to get But remind us to think long-term, to look toward the glory, both of heaven and the glory that you reward those who follow you. May we embrace a difficult present, hard choices, stepping out in faith when it doesn't make sense, because we know that you are a God that loves his people and has great things in store for them. So thank you for this scripture and your eternal word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thankfully, we have here the benediction from Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, be honored as among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, Paul writes. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.